This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Vivek H. Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States from 2014 to 2017. He's the author of the best-selling book, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. In his groundbreaking book, Dr. Murthy makes a case for loneliness as a public health concern, a root cause and contributor to many of the epidemics sweeping the world today. From alcohol and drug addiction to violence, depression, and anxiety. Loneliness, he argues, is affecting not only our health, but also how our children experience school, how we perform in the workplace, and the sense of division and polarization in our society. So, Dr. Murthy, Tricia, and I are so honored you're joining us today. Thank you, Dora. I'm so glad to be with both of you today. We know on your listening tour, you discovered just how prevalent loneliness is in our country. What surprised you most about your discovery? This really was a surprising discovery for me because when I was actually going through my confirmation process to serve as Surgeon General, I had to testify the U.S. Senate about what my priorities would be. And I listed a number of them, many of which would not surprise you, like substance use disorders and mental health. But what I didn't know was how deep a problem loneliness was. And the way it came onto my radar was I had these conversations with people around the country in the early part of my tenure as Surgeon General as part of a listening tour. And it was those conversations that really helped me realize that there was something deeper happening in our country beyond the illnesses we read about in the papers. And in fact, what I learned was that loneliness was not only common, but it was actually deeply consequential, that it increased the risk for a number of poor health outcomes, physical and mental health outcomes, and that it actually stood at the root of so many of the issues I had been thinking about working on, including violence and addiction and depression and anxiety. So I was really educated by people around the country about this. And through those conversations, conversations which, by the way, were not explicitly about loneliness, but they were often about something else. But you know, behind the stories of people telling me about their substance use disorders and their concerns about depression and anxiety in their children were these threads of loneliness where people would often say things like, you know, I have to carry all of these burdens in my life by myself. Or I feel if I disappear tomorrow, nobody would even notice. Or I feel invisible. Those stories, hearing them time and time again, from people who were living alone in nursing homes to college students on crowded college campuses, to hearing them from moms and dads and CEOs and even members of Congress, made me realize there was something deeper, uh, more concerning happening in our country. You talk a lot in your book that loneliness hit you. You understood it. Can you talk about that? You were open to allowing people to feel lonely and allowing people to talk about it. So can you talk about your experience with loneliness and you know the impact it's had on your life and now the impact on all of us because of this great book? When I heard these stories of loneliness, they were surprising, but they weren't unfamiliar because I had struggled myself with loneliness for many years, starting as a child, actually. In elementary school, I still remember, like very viscerally, what it felt like to be scared to go into school, not because I was worried about an exam or teachers, but I was worried about being on the playground and being the last one picked for a team, even though I actually was pretty skilled. 
I was worried about being the one sitting alone in the cafeteria, which is why lunchtime was one of the scariest times of the day. And I should just say, even all those years in school, I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only one feeling alone. It turns out that I now know that I wasn't. There were many, many other children who were struggling. But this is the great challenge of loneliness, is that it's invisible to the person who's lonely. You look around and it seems like everyone is having this magnificent life going to parties, that they're surrounded by friends, that people love them and appreciate them and value them. And you think to yourself, gosh, I'm the only one who feels like this. And God, I better not say anything because people might think that I'm the odd person out or something's wrong with me. But when I became a doctor and started my tenure in medicine, that's actually when I started to realize that there was something else happening. That it wasn't just me who was lonely. And this was also a bit surprising because I found that when I, as a third-year medical student, entered the hospital and started seeing patients, that many of those patients were coming in alone. There wasn't anybody with them, even though it was a really scary time because they had a major illness. And sometimes we had to give them really hard news you know, about a difficult diagnosis, or we had to make a really difficult decision together with them about should we change our treatment pathway. And at those times, I would often go to them and say, is there somebody you'd like me to call to be here? Because I know that this will be a tough conversation. And so often they would just look back at me and say, you know, I wish there was someone, but there's not. So I'll just have the conversation alone. So despite all of those conversations over the years, recognizing that I struggle with loneliness, recognizing that many of my patients were struggling with loneliness, I never realized that this was something much deeper and broader that was taking place in society. And I certainly never learned in medical school about the profound health consequences of loneliness. And like you say, it's a complex human emotion. It's unique to everybody and everybody's own experience. That's right. And, you know, to that point, Trisha, it's worth saying what loneliness is and what it's not. Because loneliness is just in terms of definitions. It's a subjective feeling, the feeling that the connections I need in my life are greater than the connections I have. And in that gap, I experience loneliness. But loneliness is not defined by the number of people around you. It's not an objective term. An objective term might be something like isolation, which is more a descriptor of the number of people around you. But because loneliness is subjective, it's a product both of what's happening around us and what's happening inside of us. And if we have many people who are surrounding us, but we don't feel connected to them, we don't feel like they understand us, we don't feel like we can be ourselves, then we can be on a crowded college campus or a busy workplace or live in a densely populated neighborhood and feel profoundly alone. But the flip is also true. That even if we only have a few people around us, if we have strong, authentic, healthy relationships with them, then we might feel actually quite content and not lonely at all. Your description of your own loneliness is something I think everyone can relate to. And it was a time before social media. So what kind of impact now does social media have on loneliness? It's such a good question. And it is actually probably the most common question. I encounter because people want to know, is technology helping us or hurting us in our quest to be more connected? The truth is that technology can do both. It can more deeply connect us. And we can talk you know, about this time of COVID and how technology, if used in the right way, can be a gift. But it really depends all on how it's used. And what I worry about for all of us, but in particular for our children, is that the ways in which we are using technology and social media in particular are ways that are actually diluting our relationships and separating us further and further from each other. And here are some simple ways in which that is happening, simple yet profoundly impactful. So number one, if you use technology in a way that it crowds out 
your time in person with other people or crowds out one-on-one or small group conversations with people or authentic interactions with others, then that can actually be really problematic. So if you're spending, for example, time instead of catching up with somebody one-on-one or in a small group, you know, so you're spending time just passively looking at your social media feed and then occasionally liking uh, posts from other people, that's not a recipe for deeper connection. In fact, people often end up feeling lonelier and in fact, more anxious. The other way in which we use technology that can be harmful is when it actually invades our conversations with other people. So for example, if I'm having a conversation with Doro, but on the side, I'm kind of flipping through my inbox and occasionally glancing at the scores, you know, the games that took place last night or glancing at the news on my computer. And and I'm telling myself all along the way, you know, I can still pay attention to what Doro is saying, like I'm still there then we fool ourselves into thinking that we're present when we're not. And science is actually very clear that as human beings, we can't multitask. What we can do is we can rapidly task switch. But that means when I'm looking at the score of the game last night, or I'm looking at my inbox at an email that just popped in, I'm actually not fully paying attention to you, even if I can repeat the words you said. Because our communication is more about the words than we exchange, right? It's about the nuance. But the final thought that I'll mention, Dora, about the consequences of social media and technology more broadly have to do with our perception of ourselves. And I worry about this for all of us, but particularly for our children whose identities are still being shaped. And here's how this plays out. Social media creates a culture of hyper-comparison. It actually creates an environment where we can much more rapidly see what's happening in other people's lives, and we can compare ourselves to that. And we can do it because we can see people's posts, sometimes hundreds in an hour. But here's the challenge, is that people aren't necessarily posting accurate reflections of their life. They're posting curated moments, their most brave moments, or their happiest moments, or their moments of greatest success. They're not always posting about their hardships, about the moments of doubt and uncertainty. And so even though intellectually we know that, Practically, what happens is we still compare our lives to other people's lives based on what we see. And as one of my friends put it, it's like comparing your average days to other people's best days, and you always come up Mm. feeling short. So the challenge here is not only is the hyper comparison just accelerated on social media, but we also end up getting much more messages through the various media channels we have, through our phone, through ads that are tossed at us all the time that are telling us that we're not enough not thin enough, not smart enough, not popular enough, not rich enough, not famous enough. And often that's paired with a product or service that, you know, is trying to be sold to us to fill that gap. If you're consuming all of this content, if you will, the message you're left with is that you're not enough and that your life isn't good enough. And if you internalize that over time, then that erodes your sense of self and your self-esteem. And when you approach other people and try to converse with them, to engage with them, to build a relationship with them, when you feel like you're constantly not enough, it's much harder to build a healthy relationship. You find yourself constantly thinking about how the other person perceives you, how to be who they want you to be, instead of feeling confident in who you are and being your authentic self. So connecting with yourself, talk about that and how important that is. One of the things that I learned, one of the key realizations, if you will, when writing this book, was that the foundation for connecting with other people is connecting deeply with ourselves. To connect with yourself is to know your value, to feel that you are worthy. It's to have a strong sense of self and to be grounded and centered. And that, to me, is an essential part of building a stronger connection with other people. It's the foundation. Talk about the difference between solitude and loneliness. 
Because I think that really talks about what you're just talking about now. It's important to make a distinction between solitude and loneliness. So loneliness is a state of feeling that I don't have enough social connections in my life and I don't feel good about it. It's a state of pain. Whereas solitude is a state of peaceful and sometimes joyful aloneness. So I may not be around other people, but I don't feel badly about it. In fact, I feel good. And the truth is that all of us, whether we're introverts or extroverts, we need some time in solitude because solitude is actually when we allow ourselves to reflect, to recenter and reground ourselves. It's when we let the noise around us, and there is a lot of noise, we let that noise settle and quieten down so that we can truly hear ourselves and simply be. And solitude doesn't have to be hours or days spent on a silent retreat away from your family or friends, although it could be that. Solitude could be a few moments that you spend in the morning sitting on your front porch, just feeling the breeze against your face. It could be time that you spend in meditation or in prayer. It could be time you spend listening to music that inspires you or time you spend in nature. But however long it is, it is the quality of that time that really matters. And the truth is, Trisha, we used to have a lot of this solitude inadvertently, pre-cell phone. For example, when waiting in a restaurant for a friend, if they were late, we had a few minutes to just sit and think and observe and be. When sitting at the bus stop waiting for a bus, we had a few moments of solitude there too. But now a lot of that white space in our life has been soaked up by our mobile devices. It gives us some benefits in terms of efficiency, no doubt. But we have to replace that solitude in our life. And if we don't, then what we find is that we're racing from engagement to engagement, from interaction to interaction. And in fact, we can become scared of being alone. And I think that that's a challenge in the modern world right now, is many people are really scared of being alone because we've forgotten how to be alone with ourselves, what to do, how to be comfortable, use that time to just simply be or to process what's going on in our life. When I think to myself that I don't have time for a solitude, when I get into those busy modes in life where like, oh my gosh, I just don't have time to meditate anymore. I don't have time to do the prayers the way I used to. I don't have time to be alone and have solitude. I think about my nephrology teacher from medical school who taught me all about the kidney. Her name is Dr. Peggy Bia. And what Dr. Bia taught me, and being an incredibly busy woman who was helping lead the medical school, teach students, ran a busy clinic, was raising two boys, she was doing so much. But she taught me that there's always time for solitude because it doesn't need to take that long. And what she would do is every day when she saw patients, before she walked into their room, she would turn on the water and for 20 seconds, let the water run over her hands. And during those 20 seconds, she would just take a deep breath and she would think about all that she was grateful for in that day. And maybe it was the hug that her two boys gave her that morning when she was saying goodbye. Maybe it was the student that she taught that morning who finally had a concept click and was so excited. Or maybe it was the opportunity to take care of the patient whose room she was about to walk into. After 20 seconds of remembering what she was grateful for, she would take another deep breath and turn off the tap. She would dry her hands and she would walk into that patient's room feeling more grounded, more centered, and more clear about who she wanted to be. That's the power of 20 seconds of solitude. And the truth is we all have 20 seconds in our day, you know, however busy we may be. But that solitude is important. And to me, teaching our children from the earliest of ages how to build healthy relationships with others and with themselves, teaching them how to be comfortable with moments of solitude and how to seek them out instead of running away from them. These are essential skills at being human. We often talk about the importance of breathing 
taking that breath like your doctor did and just taking that moment to reset. You know, and as you said, it doesn't take that long, but it sort of triggers you back to center. Before we go to the next question, when you said that we can't really multitask, you know, we know that to be true, but so many of us <laughs> think we can multitask. Can you talk about that and what that does to us? Absolutely. And I should make a distinction here because it is possible for us, for example, to walk and to talk on the phone at the same time. You know, we can do certain mechanical things like walking and take on another task. But the challenge is for us when we're trying to take on two cognitive tasks at the same time. So when we're trying to process information on our phone while also processing what somebody is saying to us in conversation. And that, it turns out, is actually extremely difficult. So th this actually plays out on two levels. One is that even though we may think that we are paying attention to both, it turns out our attention is swinging from one to another. So I may be able to repeat back the words that my friend said when I was distracted and checking my email or the news, but I may have missed some of the nuance in his voice. I may have missed how his face sort of scrunched up, you know, and indicated that he was uncomfortable or was in pain when he was telling the story to me, indicating that I had a much deeper emotional uh, valence than I may have realized. So we miss a lot of context. But there's another way in which multitasking impacts us, and that's through the other person. Because it turns out the people we're talking to know when we're distracted more often than not. And one of the studies I talked about in the book was an interesting study that was done in the UK where they found that even the presence of a phone on the table when two people were having a conversation led them to feel worse about the quality of that interaction. So we so often will tell ourselves that, you know, I'll put my phone on the table, but I won't really look at it. But a lot of times it's lighting up and our attention is drawn to the alerts, the things that are popping up on our screen. But even when we turn our phone over so that we can see the screen, the studies tell us that it still impacts, its mere presence impacts how we and the other person feel about our communication. And if you have doubts about this, you should just try taking your phone and putting it away out of sight, like during a conversation, to see how you feel. Since we're in the age of COVID, if you're interacting with people virtually, you may talk to them on the phone, but try actually putting your phone in your pocket with your headset on so that you're not tempted to scroll through other apps or to look at your inbox and just see how you feel. And you know what will happen is you'll probably feel restless initially, probably feel like I'm not using this time efficiently or I want to reach for my phone. There's this compulsion we have to check our devices. And that's not an indication that you're a weak person or a bad person. It's an indication that these devices are actually made the way they're supposed to be made. Because the companies that design so many of these platforms have brought together the world's smartest engineers and most thoughtful psychologists who understand how the human mind works. And they've designed these devices to pull you in, to be sticky, because the business models are often based on not the quality of time that you spend on your devices and these social media platforms, but on the quantity of time. So you may feel a little twitchy. You may feel you know, compelled to check. But if you keep at it, what you'll find is that the conversations, even though they may be shorter, even though your tolerance for being on the phone for an hour may be diminished because now you just want to get off and check your phone, the quality of that time you do have will over time become greater. And that's why I often say that five minutes of focused conversation where you're fully present, where you're listening deeply to someone else, where you're sharing openly, is often far more powerful than an hour of distracted conversation. 
it's striking the studies, the real scientific studies that show loneliness to be truly detrimental to our physical health. Could you go through those studies? For example, it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, equivalent to being really overweight, that kind of idea, or even more detrimental? Could you kind of review some of your favorite studies? I'll tell you, Tricia, this was a real area of fascination for me. I mentioned I went through all of medical school, and I didn't know any of this because we weren't really taught about loneliness because I think it just wasn't really well appreciated how this was more than just a bad feeling, but it was actually a state of being which had real health consequences. So what I learned when I was Surgeon General is I was inspired by people's stories to dig into the data and the science was that people who struggle with loneliness seem to have a greater incidence of premature death and they seem to live shorter lives. And that risk of increased mortality, interestingly, according to studies done by Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt at Brigham Young University, seemed to actually be just as powerful as the mortality impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And they seem to be even greater than the mortality impact of obesity or sedentary living. And I think about this in particular as a surgeon general who came from a long line of surgeons general who have worked on tobacco and smoking, who have worked on obesity and sedentary living. And we did that because we knew what the profound public health consequences were. But never did I imagine that the health consequences of loneliness could perhaps be just as severe and that the issue would be just as important. And so that's really important for us to recognize. And it's why I think of loneliness as a public health concern. And it's also why it becomes salient that loneliness is as common as it is. If I told you that loneliness is something that just affects one in a million people, that might be one thing. You might say, okay, well, those are serious health consequences, but for very few people. But if you look at the studies done on how common loneliness is in the United States, what you find is even if you look at the more conservative studies, and I mean that in terms of methodology, not politically, what you find is that a 2018 study by The Economist and the Kaiser Family Foundation pegged loneliness at about 22% in the adult population. But to put that in context, that's more than the number of people, more than the number of adults who have diabetes. That's more than the number of adults who smoke in the United States. That's a staggering number. And other studies, many other studies, have in fact put that number quite higher. The Cigna study, a study done by a major health insurer here in the U.S. in 2018 and again in 2020, showed that the percentage of people struggling with loneliness is in fact closer to 50%. They showed that there was an increase from 2018 to 2020. And very interestingly, they found, and this has been echoed by other studies as well, that one of the groups, in fact, that experienced one of the peaks of loneliness was, in fact, young adults and adolescents. And this is so surprising to many people who think, gosh, young people are just connected all the time via their devices. They probably never feel lonely, but it turns out that's not at all the case. And in fact, many of the young people I met on college campuses around the country, many of the young people whose stories are, in fact, in the book itself, felt profoundly alone. And this is actually why I now realize I heard so many parents talking to me about their worries about their kids when it came to loneliness. They would often say to me, you know, my child doesn't go out on Friday nights. They just want to be in their room all the time, like on their devices, gaming with others or just on social media. And, you know, they wondered, is there a link between that and the rising rates of depression and anxiety that we see among our children? I worry that the answer is yes, that there is a link between how we are using social media and how we're using technology, that there's a link between the messages that our children are getting about their self-worth and, on the other hand, the rates of depression and anxiety that we are in fact seeing. So 
Loneliness is common, is the bottom line. It's common in the United States. It's common in other countries. Australia, 25% of adults saying that they're lonely. UK, similar numbers. Many countries in Europe, in Asia and in Latin America, finding that double-digit percentages of their populations are struggling with loneliness. So this is a global problem. It's a public health problem. But it turns out it's a problem that we have the tools to address. We don't need fancy technology and expensive equipment. We just need to remember that prioritizing people and building a people-centered life is actually what we're called to do in this moment. And that starts with the decisions we make in our day-to-day life about where we spend our time, attention, and energy. It starts with decisions we make about how to augment the quality of time we have with other people and whether we allow distraction to invade our conversation. It starts with the decision about whether we approach other people with a desire and an intention to serve, recognizing that service, it turns out, is one of the greatest antidotes we have to loneliness. And when we reach out to others simply to check on them, to see if they're doing okay, to offer to get them food if they're worried about going to the grocery store during the pandemic, to offer to virtually babysit them if they may be struggling to telework and homeschool their kids. These are small but powerful acts of service that can deepen our bonds with one another. Can you talk about the three types of social connections that we need and sort of the treatment for loneliness? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought this up because if you don't understand the different types of loneliness, you can very easily fall into the trap of thinking that your partner's loneliness is your fault, which is an unfortunate situation that I find many couples are in. When, when they realize that their partner is lonely, they think, gosh, that means that their relationship isn't good. It means that I failed them in some way. But here's what's helpful to understand. One is there are three types of loneliness. The first is intimate loneliness. That's when we lack a close confidant in our life, somebody with whom we can just be ourselves, somebody who knows us for who we are, somebody who we can just show up and just be real with. The second type of loneliness is relational loneliness, when we lack friendships with others, friendships with the types of people we could hang out with on a Friday night, or we may invite over for dinner or for a barbecue, or who we may have over for a birthday party. And the third type of loneliness is collective loneliness. And that's loneliness that comes from lacking a community of shared identity. That community could come from many things. It could come from our shared faith, and that could be your faith community. It could come from a shared passion for service, and you may be part of a service organization together. It could come from work, if you're passionate about what you do and feel deeply connected to the people who you're doing it with. But these three types of loneliness are important to understand because they reflect three types of social connections that all of us need in our life. And so again, if you are in a wonderfully fulfilling marriage, let's say, but you don't feel like you have a community that you're a part of. You may be quite lonely, and it may have nothing to do with your primary relationship. It may not at all be a reflection on your partner. And this is a situation that I was in after I left government and found myself without the day-to-day community that I had at work, a group of people with whom I had a deep set of shared values and a shared passion for improving public health. And I also found that the relational ties that I had, so many of my friendships, I had allowed to diminish over time because during my tenure in government, I had made the critical mistake of thinking that, you know, I just need to focus on work right now because I don't know how long I have, you know, in this position, I want to do as much good as I could. And even though that may have been well-intended, it was misguided in the sense that I assumed that meant that I shouldn't focus as much, you know, on my social time and on friendships. And the result of that was I became more and more disconnected from people over time. And so when I finished and found myself outside government, 
trying to think about what to do with my life, I realized that I had a deeply fulfilling, you know, marriage with my wife, thank God, you know, she was there. And I certainly had deeply uh, fulfilling relationships with my mother, father, and my sister, but I didn't have a community. I didn't have so many of the friendships that I had cherished and that had sustained me before. So I felt profoundly alone. And it took me a few years to figure out what to do about that, to even recognize what was happening, frankly, in my life. And I did feel a sense of shame about it. I did feel a sense that I had messed up, that I had done something wrong. And part of the reason I wrote this book was because I needed to go on a journey of exploration myself to understand what had happened to me, what had happened to so many of the people I met around the country who had struggled with loneliness, what had happened to so many of the patients that I had encountered over the years whose stories stuck with me, but that I hadn't fully understood. And I wanted people to know that if they are lonely, that they're not alone. If they are feeling lonely, that it's not evidence that they're broken or that they are somehow socially deficient. We all, at different points in our life, struggle with loneliness. That it is as inherent to being human as feeling hunger or thirst. And it's as natural a signal as those feelings too, because we've evolved to need human connection, to thrive when we are together and when we're separate from one another, whether that's in reality or whether that's perceived, then it puts us in a state of threat. And in that state of threat, we worry, we feel anxious, and it changes and affects our behavior. And our body sends us a signal, feeling of loneliness, that tells us that we need more social connection in our life because it knows how important that connection is. And if we respond by picking up the phone to call our friend, then those feelings of loneliness may subside. But if we're not able to assuage them or to address them, then that loneliness can, can deepen over time. And it can really affect how we think about ourselves as well as how we think about other people. And I think we do have a crisis of loneliness in society right now. I look back at so many of the issues that I worked on when I was Surgeon General, from mental health to addiction to violence to other chronic illnesses. And I now see more clearly than I ever did before that so many of those illnesses have threads that go back to loneliness. That's not to say that loneliness is the sole cause of everything, but it turns out it's often a contributor to many of the conditions that we read about on the front pages every day, to much of what we see ailing our family, our friends, and often even ourselves. As you said, you wrote this book for that main reason, because so often we're embarrassed to say we're lonely. It's like, oh, if I'm not married, I'm embarrassed. So I have to be really strong and, you know, all that. So I think you really do bring such a positive light to it. When we think about building connection, when we think about serving other people, we think about it in a very active way. What problem of theirs can I solve? What can I actually do for them? What can I get for them? What event can I throw for them? What place can I take them to for a special dinner? We think about all of those things. One of the things I was reminded of was that one of the most powerful gifts that we can give someone else is the gift of our full attention, of our full presence. Because what you do when you are fully present with someone, when you're listening deeply to them, is you're telling them, I see you, you matter, you have value. And you're saying that without often even saying a single word about being fully present. And the thing is, as human beings, regardless of what culture we've grown up in, regardless of how old or young we are, we all have three basic needs. We all want to know that we're seen and understood for who we are. We want to know that we matter and we want to be loved. That is true for all of us. And when you listen deeply to somebody, you tell them all those things in a way that's visceral and that feels real. 
And so that's why these intimate connections with people who truly understand us, whether that's a spouse or a best friend, that's why they're so important and impactful in our life. And we don't have to have many of them. This is the thing. I mean, the, the world of social media has taught us that we need to have many friends and followers. But some of the work done by Robin Dunbar, which I talk about in the book, tells us actually that we probably need at most and probably can have at most five intimate connections, truly intimate connections in our life. Maybe some of us can have a few more. Maybe some of us can only manage a few less. But the point is that it's a small number of connections, but they are so powerful that we don't need many more to feel truly connected and to feel like we belong. That's so important, I think, for all of us to reflect on. And as you said, to sort of think about how grateful we are for those people in our lives that we can be who we are. That is like the greatest vitamin we could take. It's interesting you use the word vitamin. I was just thinking as I was writing this book, if I told you that there was a pill that would reduce your risk of heart disease and dementia, it reduce your risk of premature death, that would actually enhance your performance in the workplace and at school, you would think, gosh, that's amazing. I take that pill every day. That is what our relationships do for us. And it's not fancy. It's not expensive. It's not new technology, but it's a powerful resource we've had with us for millennia. And what's happened is that we've just taken our eye off of how powerful it is. We've allowed more by default than anything else for relationships to fall on our priority list. Because a lot of us, like if I stopped 100 people on the street and I said, tell me what your top priority is in life, I guarantee you that 99, if not all 100, would name a person or a group of people. They'd say, my top priority is my kids, or it's my spouse, or it's my parents, or my siblings. They would say something along those lines. So the problem is not that we don't think people are important. The problem is actually in how we live our lives. And I'm the perfect example of this. For many years, I said people were my number one priority. But if I looked at how I actually live my life, the place where I put my priorities in terms of my attention, focus, and energy was actually work. And I now recognize that. And part of what helped push me out of that state to realize that there was a gap between my stated priorities and my lived priorities was actually my experiences in medicine, and especially in my training, where I was going through these intense periods of working 80 to 100 hours a week and being surrounded by people who were profoundly ill and who were struggling, often in the final days and weeks of their life, many of whom actually, it turns out, were my age. I was in my 20s at that time. And it just pushed me to realize, I was like, I don't know how much time I have in this world. None of us do. Like, how do I really want to live my life? How do I want to make my time count? And it's when I started making that commitment that I've got to close that gap. I've got to take more time and spend it with the people I care about, even if it costs money or if it costs, you know, time. Like, that's what I've got to do. Because when I think about the people I remember most from my time in medicine, it's the patients at the end of their life. But what I think about most is what they talked about. In those final moments, and when we had nothing left to do from a medical perspective that we could offer, when the only thing to do was to sit with them and to be present and to hold their hand at the bedside, I think about those precious conversations. And what people talked about were not how much money they had in their bank account or what their accomplishments were or what their last title was in their job or how many followers they had on social media. They never talked about those things. But what they talked about were their relationships, the ones that had brought them great joy, the ones they wished they had spent more time with, the ones that broke their hearts. And it always made it so clear to me in those moments that when everything else falls away in the final stages of life, it's our relationships that rise to the top, that remain, 
as the enduring great source of fulfillment and value. And the truth is we don't have to wait until our final days. We can build a more deeply connected life now. We can do it by prioritizing people. And as I think about the rest of my life, but also as I think about what lesson do I want to teach my children, I think it's this. It's the lesson of how to truly build a life that's centered around people, how to truly put people first. And if that's the only thing that I leave my children with, then I know that I will have equipped them to live a life that's deeply fulfilling, not necessarily a life that's easy or that's uncomplicated, but a life that is full of love, that's full of kindness, and that's full of happiness. And that's what matters most. That's so powerful. Dr. Murthy, thank you for joining us today. It's just been amazing. And your book is one everyone should read. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.